suffered mental agony. That's what was happening in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was sweating blood, right? He was experiencing mental agony. And during that time, what he wanted near him were his friends. And his friends kept falling asleep. So Jesus knows what it's like to be suffering with emotional and mental difficulty and to feel alone in that. So he is the right intercessor for us because he's been through it all. Tonight we have a bunch of, of experts here. We have survivors and counselors and I come at this from the spiritual side. So what does mental illness have to do with church? This is what the church is for, is to come alongside every single person, whether experiencing weakness or strength, trials, celebrations, that's what the church is for. And it's about noticing and caring for one another and about telling the truth that on this earth and to this God, you belong. And no one belongs here more than you. Mental illness is an illness. It's nobody's fault. As people who care about one another, we can all help each other by, by keeping our eyes open, noticing, and talking about it. So sometimes tonight, it's gonna sound like we're talking to parents, but you actually spend more time with your friends than you think you do, right? And so when you hear advice about noticing, that's for you too. The person who, who saved my life in high school was this guy that, he was, he was a school friend, right? He wasn't like a super close friend. He was, he was a guy who made me laugh. And one day he said, what's wrong with you? And I said, nothing, what's wrong with you? And he said, no, seriously, you seem sadder than normal and it's worrying me. What's wrong? And the fact that somebody I didn't know very well noticed me and saw me made me cry. And then I couldn't put the genie back in the bottle. Then it was clear that there was something wrong. So the challenge really for you, whether you're going through mental illness or not, is to ask the follow-up question. What's wrong with you? Nothing. No, but really, I'm worried about you. So we're going to start with the intro video, and then we'll get the night off to a start. Hello, Mrs. Jones. Hey, senior. Coach. Emma. Mom. Last year, I experimented with painkillers, and then I started taking them every day. 174 days ago, I started intentionally vomiting after meals. My interior cingulate cortex has a population of overactive neurons. Cutting my arms has become a compulsive behavior. I started having suicidal thoughts. Can you help me find the proper support and medical resources? Can you help me research the best treatment facilities? I'd love to chat with you about ideas on how to help manage this. out last week when you asked me to unload the dishwasher. I've been unusually hostile because I'm dissatisfied with my body. 
174 days ago, I started intentionally vomiting after meals. I thought I was in control, but I'm not. And I feel immense shame and guilt. Can you help me research the best treatment facility so I don't have to feel like this anymore?
freshman and sophomore year of high school, I would have the same lunch every single day. Uh, I'd start either making my breakfast really small or skipping breakfast. And then going to the gym for like longer periods of time. I had a calorie app, one of those like calorie tracking apps. And then I don't know how, like, we call it, we call it body checking. It's like in like a window or like a mirror. But it's like, everybody does that in terms of like, you try on a new pair of clothes and then you look and see how it fits you. But the term body checking is really like, you're looking at specific areas of your body and how they like, sit on your body, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then drinking excessive amounts of water. Think eating disorders, since they are a psychiatric condition, are connected to a lot of the other mental health conditions between um, OCD, anxiety, and depression because Individuals who have eating disorders deal with a lot of anxiety and depression because um, they're so focused around food. They have anxiety around people, around eating, around the foods that they eat. So something as simple as hanging out with their friends can be anxiety inducing because you never know, are we gonna eat as a group? What are we gonna eat? Where are we gonna eat? Are they gonna look at me? Are they looking at my body? It can be a source of depression because, oh, I'm not gonna leave my house because I don't want people to stare at my body. I am too self-conscious because I don't feel like I look good enough. Whatever situation that's causing me to um, not feel like I'm able to eat or causing me to restrict my food intake is the source of the depression. It can be weighing down on the person the OCD that comes with uh, having to try to eat the perfect diet or whatever diet that individual is following, whether it is I'm going to restrict my carb intake or I'm going to try to take out all the meats in my diet or take out sugars or whatever they just try to do. All those different things is so overwhelming on a person. And you try to hear or you hear all the things that the media is already telling you about take this diet pill, try this diet, this is what you shouldn't be eating, you should be eating this, this is the perfect diet. You take all the things you're learning in school about diet and exercise, you should only be having two hours of screen time, you should be exercising 60 minutes a day, eating this many calories, but oh, if you uh, have this much activity, you should have this many calories. And our teenagers are taking in all this information every single day and it changes every single year and that's anxiety inducing for any individual teenager or adult it's anxiety inducing for healthcare providers because it's always changing you never know what information is right so i think particularly for people who have an eating disorder trying to make sure everything is perfect 
um, so that they can have the perfect body that in their head meets their standards is just so complicated. So I think really understanding the fact that they're trying their best to meet this ideal that's unrealistic um, every single day, day in and day out, is so exhausting. And the constant anxiety surrounding every aspect of their life, whether it is what clothes that they're gonna wear, how they're gonna interact with the next person, what meal are they gonna eat, Oh, should I drink this water, yes or no? Did I exercise enough today? Should I go out in public? Do I watch TV? Did I earn the fact that I should watch TV? Did I earn this? I'm gonna chew this gum because I'm hungry, but I didn't earn my snack. All these different factors that go into their daily lives is just so anxiety-inducing. So I think when you work or are friends or you have a child, who has an eating disorder, really trying to understand the perspective that they're coming from because it is something that you really don't consider all the factors. So really trying to take it from their point of view as well because it is really shocking for the first time when you try to have them open up to you because it really changes your mindset. And I think patience and understanding is really, really important because they are really going through something and they need your help and they need your um, understanding and your support because they're trying to heal. Yeah. One thing I would say to youth pastors, I would tell them that it's not prohibited to talk about mental health in your youth ministry. The youth ministry I grew up in we touched on mental health pretty often. I felt that it was really comforting as a youth student to hear it in sermons because it made it seem like it wasn't taboo to talk to my youth leader about my own mental health and my own struggles. I think it creates an avenue for youth students to be able to open up with their fellow students and their youth leaders and youth pastors about whatever they're struggling with I think it also provides an opportunity to share that God provides grace and forgiveness and wisdom around the area of mental health. I think it's often an area of shame that people feel because it's like, oh, I'm dealing with this blanket of sadness, this blanket of darkness. And a lot of times um, with younger people, they don't really know why. It's like, oh, I'm just sad. And I don't know why, I'm anxious. There's no reason for it. My life can be just fine. Um, I go to school, my parents are together. There's no, there's no reason for me to be sad. Um, God has forgiven me all these different things and they're just sad. And I think knowing that um, in the church, talking about um, how God forgives still for people who do deal with mental health is really comforting because it is a daily forgiveness knowing that Jesus is still walking with you while you are sad and that though you're in this season of just darkness and that it can feel like it's never ending, you feel like you're stuck, you're just sitting in this place that you don't know how to get out of. It's not like God has abandoned you, but that it's like, all right, you're here. No one has left you, but I'm gonna sit here with you and we're gonna walk through this together and ultimately, 
this is a journey that God's going to grow you through. You're going through this for a reason. So I think continuing to touch on the different aspects of it um, is really helpful for students because it's something that they can lean um, into while they're in this season. They never hear about mental health in the church when they're young. They'll go through the season not hearing about Jesus and not hearing about how God deals with mental health, not hearing about the scriptures in the Bible that they can lean on to. And then they'll hear just kind of what the doctor says, kind of hear, oh, well, take this pill and you'll feel better. And there's nothing wrong with medication. I'm all for taking medication. But I think there's that delicate balance of you take medication, but you also have to take, or you also have to pray. God heals people. I think healing is really a powerful thing. And you pray and you take your medication because God gave us doctors. So I think you have to really appreciate both in that delicate balance. Thing I could say to students, I would tell them that you guys are not alone in this. I think students, it is a really hard world. The world is difficult, the world is scary. Growing up as a teenager right now, arguably it's the most difficult time. I think between social media, regular media, Netflix, school, everything that the world has to offer right now, you guys have so many things being thrown at you expectations that are being placed on your shoulders is arguably unrealistic and it's not fair. I think you guys have so much that you guys are dealing with and it's so difficult day in and day out for you guys what you guys have to deal with. I think I commend you guys for all that you guys do, what you guys have to put up with and I feel like you guys should use each other as a resource. Use your youth pastors, use your youth leaders, your parents, your mentors, as a resource for whatever you're going through. I, I pray that you guys take care of your mental health just as much as your physical health, because it will impact you going into your young adult years. Because I did not take care of my mental health as well as I should have, and it does impact you. But if you do have mental health problems, it is not too late. I think there is always time and you always have a choice. I think you should always make the choice to take care of yourself. I know it's difficult and you have all these other commitments, but it's even the little things such as taking a step back to take care of yourself. I always value self-care. I preach self-care to my kids at work. I preach self-care to all my friends. <clears throat> and I think really trying to find people in your circle who will also motivate you and who are gonna push you to be the best version of yourself. I think in this season of the life that you're in, finding a mentor would be really valuable, someone who's going to motivate you, someone who's going to keep you accountable for the things that you are going through, for the goals that you have for your future selves, not only far future, but your near future. And I want to 
motivate you guys to pursue your faith. I think faith is the most important thing and it keeps you going no matter how dark your life may get, no matter how difficult your circumstances may be. I think the Lord has a plan for each and every single one of you. And that plan he has laid out perfectly. He knows exactly where you guys are right now. And he has you there for a reason. I don't want you guys to think that he has forgotten about you. And I want you to know that you guys are stronger than you think you are. I know teenagers, it's difficult being a teenager. It is so difficult. But you guys are gonna walk through the season and look back and see that you guys made it through really tough stuff. And life is hard, but life is also so rewarding. And you guys are gonna make it, I promise. Okay, we're going to take just a moment because I don't wanna rush past I don't want to rush, rush past Rachel and some of the things she said about you being stronger than you think you are. And that it's worth it. But next we're going to look at anxiety and depression and then we're going to hear from Michelle who has a personal story. Want to run the movie? Hi, Coach. Thanks for helping me when I was really out of breath during drills yesterday. You suggested it might be asthma. It's actually an anxiety disorder. My interior stimulate cortex has a population of overactive neurons that produce extreme fear of uncertainty. This manifests itself into what is informally called panic attacks. I'd love to chat with you about ideas of how to help manage this so I can be a better player have a better life. Hey CJ, I'm sorry I've been blowing off rehearsals. I know you're sick of my excuses, but I'm not just withdrawing from you guys, I'm withdrawing from everyone. I've been overwhelmed with fatigue and irritability and I am who don't is worsening. Last week, they started having suicidal thoughts. I was wondering if we could spend some time at the next practice strategizing ways I could seek help. Hi, I'm Michelle Solberg. Um, I am an elementary school counselor. I was a teacher for 20 years first, uh, and then I've been an elementary counselor for 17 years. I'm also a single adoptive mom. I adopted my daughter when she was five weeks old from Vietnam. She is now 21. Um, so a little bit of my background is um, working as a school counselor. Um, I have worked with families whose kids have struggled with anxiety. And I've taken workshops and trainings, and so I should know and be able to recognize all of that, right? <laughs> and know what to do when I see it. Um, but with my daughter, she was almost the perfect little kid. Everybody always said, oh, she's so good natured, she's so happy, she's so easygoing, which is all very true of her. 
Um, but starting around middle school, I started noticing her being more anxious and withdrawing more from friends. Um, she would be fine seen during the school day, but never really wanted to get together with people much outside of school, unless it was someone she felt really, really safe with. She had a best friend here at church she had known since she was a baby, and she felt safe with her, but really pretty much not safe uh, with anyone else I found out later. Uh, I didn't know that um, when she was in middle school. I attributed a lot of the behaviors that I saw to um, a kid who's an introvert and I'm an extrovert. We really couldn't be more different in a lot of ways. And so I was just saying, okay, I just need to be gracious and, and that's just her personality and that's okay and I'm not gonna be over worried about that. Um, and she managed life okay. She, she did well in school. She, she um, was able to do some social things um, that were structured and that she felt safe doing. But as she moved into her freshman year of high school, um, she was a cheerleader, she was a flyer, uh, and the, the stunts and things they did, which made me have anxiety, but, um, but she was determined to do well and um, liked a lot of things about that. But the peer pressure related to all of that and being on a cheer squad and being um, pressured to do scarier and scarier stunts, um, those kinds of things seemed to really um, turn her anxiety up. And she would look at her week, like on Sunday night, she would start to get really anxious and she'd look at her week and she'd say, Mom, um, I have something every day after school except Thursday. And I'm like, yeah, because that's how I've always lived my life and I like that. <laughs> so I'm thinking, that sounds good to have a night off. <laughs> um, but that's not how she thought of it. She thought of it, this already looks overwhelming to me. I'm looking at my weekend, it's too much. And so I would just kind of talk her through it and help her think, just think about the next day, just think about what you have to bring for tomorrow, um, those kinds of things. And that's pretty much how we got through high school, um, is kind of talking her down kind of off the cliff when she would get really worked up about, um, about different things, trying to break things down into smaller chunks so she didn't feel overwhelmed. Um, she dropped cheer after freshman year that stress was too much. Um, but what I realized later are some of the things that drove her anxiety, some of you might be able to relate to. Um, some of it was her fear of abandonment. For her being adopted, there's some things related to being adopted that a lot of uh, adopted people feel. And one of that is, if I'm not good enough, maybe you won't love me. And I think some of us that haven't been adopted with our parents. If I'm not good enough, if they know I'm struggling, are they still gonna love me? Is that gonna be okay? And so she would have expectations that I never said to her. She always hung out with the really smart kids at school and she was average. And so she would compare herself to them and I'd be like, honey, I don't expect that. I just expect you to do your best job. Like I have, I don't care whether you're on honor roll. I don't care if you have straight A's. I don't care if you take advanced placement classes. Like, you do what works for you. But somehow in her head, she had these expectations that she thought I had, whether it was academic, behavioral, whatever, um, that she was able to voice to me after high school, but that I didn't really know uh, she was going through um, at the time very much. So as she moved into her freshman year of college, she decided to go to PCC 
Rock Creek and stay at home that year. She had a boyfriend that was going to be going to Portland State and going to be in town, and so that seemed to work. Um, and then the stress of college and the stress of uh, her boyfriend feeling like she needed to end that relationship, she began to have panic attacks, um, which I had never seen in her before. And um, fortunately, most of the time they were happening, they were happening at home. Um, she was somehow able to hold it together enough at school. Um, she broke up with one boyfriend, started dating someone else, and then that fear of abandonment, again, in a relationship, um, kind of drove her into more anxiety. So as that school year went on, that freshman year of college, which by the way is a very common time for kids to especially struggle, um, she got to the point where she was um, uh, totally could not function. She was at home, she slept in my bed because she was terrified to sleep by herself. And I was terrified at that point to sleep for her to sleep by herself because she just wasn't herself. Fortunately, we were able to get um, an appointment with their doctor right away. But the doctor said, well, let's wait till finals are over. Maybe it's situational, all of that. But by the time she got through finals, she, she was a wreck. And so um, we were able to get her started on medication. Uh, it took a little longer to get into a counselor. Um, but she has done therapy and medication since. Um, during all of that time that she was struggling, um, even before it got really critical, I think a lot of times she would isolate herself. And at times, especially when I realized how severe it was, I felt kind of isolated. Even though I understood about mental health, I still felt like, oh gosh, everyone's always thought Michaela's just this great kid and now she's struggling. Or like, I'm a mental health provider myself, like how am I, how, how did I end up raising a child who struggles with this, right? And that, the guilt you feel as a parent. But I think that didn't last long for me. Um, I think right away it was all about what does she need. Um, and what I realized too is what she also needed was a healthy mom. And so her anxiety caused me to have anxiety, worried about her. And so parents, I would really encourage you to get help for yourself. Um, because typically I don't have anxiety. But in those kinds of situations when we're under so much stress with our kids struggling, we need support too, so that we can be healthy to support our kids. I also was fortunate to have friends that are incredibly supportive and understanding. And so I could, there was a couple friends I really trusted and I could be real with. Um, I think it's important to know that um, I've seen eating disorders as young as third grade. I have seen anxiety in kindergartners. I have had kindergartners who literally cannot come to school because their anxiety is so out of control. And I have had older kids who seem to be doing fine the first few years of school and then suddenly are like paralyzed by the thought of coming to school, even though nothing traumatic happened at school. Just something has changed and they're struggling. And so I think it's just important to know that this can be anybody. It can be any family. 
it can show up at any time. It can show up at five, or it can show up at 18 or 30. It can show up any time, these kinds of struggles. Um, and I think it's just important that we're real about it. The best thing that helped me, and then it actually helped my daughter too, I think she saw how I was, is that once she was diagnosed, got medication, was getting counseling, she started to talk to some of her friends and she actually got a friend to go get help because she knew that help made a difference. And so I think that she was careful about talking to people she felt safe to talk with, but I think it's, it's really important to share your story, like people are up here tonight, because it makes a difference for the other people that need help. Thank you. So that's one of those opportunities to be a friend. Sometimes we mix trauma and mental illness, and sometimes they do occur together, but sometimes we have this biological thing that makes us feel sad or afraid or compulsive, and we naturally want to fill in the blank, right? We want to find a reason for it, but sometimes there isn't a reason, and there doesn't have to be. Jillian is going to give us some things that we can do. So I'm Jillian Dial, and I'm uh, also a school counselor. I work um, for a, a six through 12 middle and high school. And so I talk with a lot of students about their struggles with um, mental health issues. And um, we, we, we see all the different kinds of things. And one of the things that sometimes students who are facing anxiety um, uh, realize is that they, they become afraid of everything. And one of the things to be aware of is that anxiety underneath it all is actually one of our helpful emotions. Anxiety has a purpose. Um, just like all of our feelings have a purpose, they're there to tell us something about what's going on in the world and, and, and what we should be paying attention to. So anxiety comes up for most of us when something needs attention, when there's a danger, like if there was a, you were in the road and there's a bus barreling down towards you, you're gonna feel, oh, you know, you're gonna feel fear and anxiety. If there's a dog that looks like it's gonna bite, you're gonna feel anxiety. And then those things kind of produce a reaction in your body that's um, fueled by adrenaline. And that adrenaline is saying, fight that dog or you can run away and get out of the way of the bus and it gives you a surge of energy in your body and the thing is is when you're anxious or having a panic attack you're getting that same kind of adrenaline as you would get if there was a real danger but there isn't a real danger when you're having a panic attack about something that you don't really need to fight or you don't really need to run from so just knowing that anxiety and panic comes from adrenaline can help us figure out, oh, I can then maybe take a little bit more control over my body and figure out how to have it calm down by reducing the adrenaline that's surging around. So one of the things um, that can calm us when we're feeling very anxious is doing the deep breathing. And so maybe we can try that. Everybody put your hand on your tummy and breathe. Like, and make your tummy go out. Instead of just breathing at the top of your, of your lungs like we usually do, 
new strategy that can help us. And then the other thing that um, often works for adrenaline is doing some kind of exercise because it kind of gets that energy out and the adrenaline starts to subside. And so having some way to do some exercise when you're feeling anxious could be good. Okay, so how do I do that when I'm sitting in class, you're going to ask me, or when I'm in a position where I can't do it? So there's a couple of things to try. Some kind of exercise when you're just um, sitting and can't really go anywhere. Push your feet down really strongly into the floor. You know, nobody says give it a try, push your feet down, and see it's using physical exercise, but you can't, nobody can see you doing that. You could be doing that quietly just to help yourself cope and so on without anybody seeing it. And another one is to put your hands just on your chair. You'll go ahead and give that a try and push your body up, both hands. I can't do both hands because I got the microphone. Both hands, and he's demonstrating. And you just push your body up a little bit and it's, it's kind of hard work. So you're doing a little bit of exercise right there in place that can help. Um, also, it can help to like notice normal things. Try to get your brain back on the present. So maybe you're sitting there feeling super anxious, but you can notice, oh, the sun is shining, or the window's open, or there's some people there, and I'm doing this, and I'm, you know. So just noticing things sometimes can help. And then also doing things that help you feel comforted. So whether that's, you know, soft toy or a cup of tea, it's always a cup of tea for me because I'm British, I really don't have any tea. part of this. So when you're feeling panicky and anxious and you have those thoughts that might be telling you that it's dangerous, but it isn't really dangerous, you have to think about maybe, maybe I'm thinking something is dangerous when it isn't. And it's worth sometimes thinking about those thoughts and like, well, what do I believe about the situation? And is that making me feel worse? So um, I always tell the story that if you're in bed at night and you're asleep and you hear a big kind of crash from another room or from downstairs in your house, and if you think somebody's broken into my house, what are you going to feel? You're going to feel kind of super scared, somebody's demonstrating in the front here. Absolutely terrified because who knows what harm that person might do because they've broken into your house. But if you're in your house and you hear that crash in that other room, same noise, downstairs, crash, but you know that your cat always walks across the table and knocks that face over, and what a pain is that cat, are you going to feel scared? Not really. You're going to be a little bit miffed for the, about the cat, right? Oh, cat waking me up in the middle of the night. But it's not, it's not going to be scary. It's not going to be so scary. So what you think about the situation can change what you and so that's something to, to think about too, is like, am I automatically thinking that this situation is a catastrophe to me? Whereas if I really look at it, maybe it's not so, maybe that's not really true. You know, and to think about uh, what's really true can help. Um, another thing I want to mention is that when you feel super anxious, it's not always necessarily helpful to avoid the situation. Of course, that's the most tempting thing to do. I'm scared I want to get away from this person or the situation that's scaring me. But when you get away from it, you feel better. And that feeling better can sometimes...
sometimes mean that you want to avoid more and more things. So I just want to just put out a, a challenge there that if you are feeling super scared of a number of different things, to maybe try to look at them and figure out some coping strategies to be able to stay in the situation and kind of gradually bit by bit learn to deal with it rather than continuing to escape. Um, trying to change how you think about it and also how you respond um, when that journaling comes in. So a few resources that might help. Um, if it's really, really an extreme situation and you're finding that you're avoiding things a lot and, and, and really suffering from it, you might want to start um, through your pediatrician, you know, talking to your doctor about it, as has been mentioned. Um, or there's, there's some uh, specialty uh, places like Northwest Anxiety Institute. And sometimes it, it, it could work possibly, I, I brought this book along, it's called The Anxiety Workbook for Teens. And um, so when, uh, when we um, break up, I'll, I'll just be at the back and I'll have it if you want to take a look through and see if that might be helpful or if you want to write down the title or something. So um, it's uh, pretty easy to get on Amazon or whatever. <laughs> Sometimes just with growing as a teenager, as you're, as you're growing up, you're growing incredibly fast and your brain is developing incredibly fast. And sometimes our brains and our emotions and our hormones kind of get ahead of our coping strategies. And so sometimes it's a matter of saying, well, this is something I'm going through, but I can, I can learn some strategies for this. And it is, it is possible to um, figure out some things that really help with anxiety and with the other mental health things as well. So um, it's not something that is really huge necessarily for you. It could be something that, that you just spend a little bit of time reaching out to people that can help and learning some strategies and you might be able to get on top of it. So I'm hoping for that. And um, there are plenty of adults in your life that want to help, the leaders that are here, um, uh, counselors at school, and I'm sure that your parents would want to help as well. Thank you. That book is also listed on the back of that card that was on your seat, um, the site that says resources. Yeah, so there's several things back there. Hi, everyone. My name is Katie Asad. Um, I will be sharing my survival story. One person. It only takes one person to make a positive difference in the atmosphere of a home. When you hear the word home, what is it that you think of? Maybe you get flashbacks of sitting with your mom, dad, and siblings all around the dining room table enjoying a home-cooked meal. Or maybe some of you may have such distinct memories of horror in your home that you needed to escape and start fresh elsewhere. Either way, each one of us in this room need a place we can call home. Today, I'd like to start a conversation on the importance of having a place where we can take off whatever masks we may wear and be vulnerable in a safe place that feels like a true home. By sharing my personal experiences, I hope you feel encouraged to not only seek out a place that is comforting and sacred to you, but to provide that place for loved ones around you. Looking at my life from the outside, one would think I grew up in a very normal and traditional household. Living in Beaverton for most of my life, 
I was always in the upper to middle social class. With that being said, I lived in a very safe area in the suburbs. The few friends I had were always good influences, and I went to Cedar Mill every single Sunday and Wednesday. It was a picture-perfect childhood until you saw the inside of what went on in my home. At the age of nine, my parents legally separated because of my dad's mental illness. He is believed to be a paranoid schizophrenic, and at a young age, I remember him changing so drastically that it changed my whole family. The once safe haven became the source of stress and anxiety for me, as I never knew when my dad would try to pop in and argue with the rules set in place. My brother started using drugs at the age of 12, so two out of the three men in my life quickly became the people I feared most. The older I got, the more aware I was of the dysfunction in my house. And school is not much of an escape for me, as I was bullied for looking different than the other Caucasian girls around me. Anxiety and fear crippled me for as long as I could remember, until I found a way to escape and numb the pain using self-harm starting at age 12. Every day I dreaded going to school, but I hated having to go back to my house where the chaos and pain was. When I entered high school, I entered an entirely different world, a world full of so many decisions to make without knowing how to make the healthiest ones for me. All I knew was that I did not want to go home and I wanted to numb any pain that it brought me. As a freshman in high school, I started using drugs, missing school, and hanging out with people that wanted to live fast and die young. They were the only people that had accepted me into their group, and with them, I thought I had found home. Unfortunately, those people were the same ones that turned their backs on me when I started having suicidal thoughts and tried acting on them. I was screaming for help, searching for a place I could be safe and find who I truly was. But all I found was how to suppress the shame and guilt and distract myself until it all fades away and I had to repeat the same cycle over again. I didn't care what happened to me. I didn't care what decisions I made or who I was around as long as I didn't have to feel the emotions I felt at my house. This mindset led me to date men that were not Prince Charming, to say the least. My first serious relationship was with a predator that ended up lying about his age for most of the relationship. But by the time I found out his actual age, I was so wrapped up in trying to forget everything in my life that I stayed with him until the police found out. Eventually, he was sentenced to a few years in prison, and the fog over my eyes slowly cleared, and I saw him for who he really was. After that relationship, I felt no worth or value. I had now been abused and mistreated, and I had no place to turn to for guidance. I still slept in my bed at home, but was rarely there. I would cling to everything else around me until I was hanging out in the streets more than anything else. The girl who had straight A's went to church every Sunday, wanted to please all authority and parental figures, so full of life and innocence, was now a drugged out zombie, zombie, hanging out in places no teenage girl should ever be. There were numerous people in my life that tried to warn me, 
tried to guide me to live a different life, but I had no idea how to change. Even when life at home was calm and under control, I was still so far gone that I never thought I'd make it out alive, nor did I want to. Three and a half years ago, my mom told me about a job opportunity at the church. Reluctantly, I decided to apply, even though I swore I wouldn't get it. I was a week away from working at a club in Beaverton and giving a man I barely knew 50% of my income. I heard from one of the pastors at the church saying they already hired someone, but that they would keep me in mind. So I kept moving forward with my plans to work at this club. I was a few days away from starting the job when I got an email asking to come in for an interview at Cedar Mill. I miraculously got the job as a member of the facilities team, and I began working right away. At the time, I had no prior experience, no diploma or GED, and no reason to get hired. I now realize it was God all along, wanting me to get this job at the place I always ran from. God spoke through my coworkers, and over the years, they became family to me. Each member of the church would gently break down my walls and help me gain trust in people. And God took me on the wildest adventure of figuring out who he made me to be. When I began speaking, I asked you to think of home. Whatever image you thought of, I now want you to imagine what it would look like for every member in your family to have one area in the house that is a safe haven for them. What could you do to create that space and environment for them? How could you posture yourself to make room for the safety and comfort of someone else around you? In or outside of your home, you can create a place of shelter for someone else. Having a place that is home is something I think is extremely vital to the youth of our country. One day we will all be home with Jesus, but what does he want you to do to further his kingdom and bring heaven on earth? Thank you. So you know your beginning, middle, and end. We don't know the end, but 
know how to save her. So we do know how it descends. Then it creates this sense of internal peace. And so even if we are suffering with something, when we know our story, and even better, when we can share our story with, with, with people, uh, it creates a sense of, of peace inside us. And so um, a little example of this is um, with my own mom. Uh, I'm not going to go into my testimony right now, but I had a lot of resentment when I was your age, um, especially when I was 15. Is anyone 15? Hands up and go, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Man, being 15 was tough. I had like so much on my mind. I nailed how to pop shove it. Who's that skateboarder I saw outside? I nailed, I know, nailed how to pop shove it, but I, I couldn't nail a heel flip. And then aside from that, I was in complete chaos inside um, about everything. And I resented my parents and I didn't really know what that was about. If you asked me when I was 15, do you resent your mum? I would have said no. And then years later, I realized that a lot of the stuff that was happening for me was to do with this pain um, about things that were happening at home. And much later when I was studying psychology, I sat down with my mum and said, mum, there's an assignment I have to do about knowing your history. So who is your mum? I didn't even know my grandmother's name because she died before I was born. And, and I get this whole thing and my mum tells me that she was abandoned as a child and um, that she never had a mum to give her an example of how to be a mum. And she told me that the lady at the tuck shop, I think that's a British word, tuck shop, like the, where you get candy and stuff and soap, and she was staying in a, like a orphanage. Yeah, a school store. She was, uh, yeah, she was staying in this, she was in a boarding school. Um, was the only person growing up that saw my mum, like what Michelle was talking about. Um, and every day when my mum went to buy something with a little bit of money she had, she'd give us some soap and smile and see her. And I was, I was crying when I heard this about my mum. I was like, my gosh. But what it did is helped me know myself more because I realised a lot about her. And so I'm reading a story because I think the story is really important. I work primarily with zero to six year olds with trauma um, and um, all sorts of stuff and their parents. And this story is definitely for zero to six year olds. But what happens in it, the start's kind of what happens to Little Rabbit and, and Big Rabbit. But what Big Rabbit does is the important thing. And this is what we all can do as parents, um, with our friends. Um, even if we don't have a Big Rabbit to talk to about something, we do have God. And we can talk to God. And also we're going to try and encourage you to talk to someone if you need to as well today. So. So, uh, yeah, I, I read this all the time in therapy. Little Rabbit, you probably won't be able to see it, but so, so okay. Little Rabbit sighed a deep sigh and said, when you weren't with me, I missed you so much. I missed you too, responded Big Rabbit, tenderly. I thought about you every day. I wanted you to hold me, said Little Rabbit. I wanted to hug you and never let you go. Sighed Big Rabbit. But you weren't there, whispered Little Rabbit. Big Rabbit took a deep breath and replied, I'm so sorry I wasn't with you. We're together now. Little, Little Rabbit thought for a while and finally spoke. Yes, but... Sometimes I'm very mad. I don't understand why you weren't with me. I worry you'll go away again. My tummy hurts. 
I don't trust you, I feel scared. When I'm upset, I need you, but then I get mad and I push you away. I don't know what to do. Big Rabbit listened carefully and then softly said, I'm very sorry, I'm very sad that this happened. I wasn't with you and you didn't understand why. You probably felt confused, scared, hurt, sad, angry. You probably felt so alone. I did, explained Little Rabbit. I felt so alone, confused, hurt, sad, scared, angry. I didn't know where you were. Where were you? asked Little Rabbit. Big Rabbit remembered and then shared from the heart. I wasn't with you, but I was thinking about you all the time. I hoped and planned and dreamed and worked so I could get back to you because you're so important and I love you so much. I don't know what it was like for you when I wasn't there, Big Rabbit added. But I want to know. I want to know what you did. I want to know if there were good people who helped you. I want to know if bad or scary things happened too. I want to give you all the hugs and kisses that I couldn't give you then. I wasn't with you then, said Big Rabbit, but I'm here now. Little Rabbit and Big Rabbit were quite, quite close now. They looked into each other's eyes and then said, we are together again after so long. You can go, oh. <laughs> What I love about that book, there's a lot of psychology in this book. What the, the part I like the, the most is Big Rabbit thought that Big Rabbit did a good job because Little Rabbit says, you weren't with me, I'm so mad at you. And Big Rabbit says, I'm really sorry, but I'm with you now. But then Little Rabbit felt safe. And we've kind of all touched on that. This feeling of kind of feeling psychologically safe and said, yes, but, and then let all the emotion out and said, but I'm mad at you and I was scared, where were you? And what Big Rabbit did in that moment wasn't say, don't have those feelings, I don't want to talk to you about it. It's kind of like Big Rabbit took a breath and just contained Little Rabbit. I hear you. Yeah, you probably did feel all those things. You felt sad and you named all those feelings. And then Little Rabbit said, yes, I felt all those feelings. And what that was was healing. That's a healing interaction right there. And so that's, I guess, with the coping skills we've talked about, with knowing our story, with getting help, all those kinds of things. One of the things we can do is be like big rabbit to each other, either as parents or as friends for each other. And if there's something, if someone's having big feelings like that and we feel, I don't know if I can hold that, that's, that might mean something is happening for you too, that you might need to check in with. How come when someone's angry, I can't sit with that? I can't do that. How come when someone's really sad, I want to walk away? That's worth wondering about and, and checking in with yourself about. That's kind of what going to therapy is like. Um, that's kind of what a great relationship with a friend's like or a great relationship with your parents is like. And so no matter what the thing is, whether it's a mental health illness and you know we're down that, on the continuum of mental health from super healthy, everything's going good, or we're, we're kind of going through a sickness or something like that at the time, this is the kind of thing that can help integrate us and heal us and help us feel better. So I hope that was helpful to you.